Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast on rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. As we continue to look at promising practices in rural healthcare delivery, including the recruitment and retention of rural doctors, we were interested in a recent joint project of the College of Family Physicians of Canada and the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada. With work spanning from 2014 to 2017, the project is called Advancing Rural Family Medicine, the Canadian Collaborative Task Force. The goal was to improve the health of rural Canadians by producing and sustaining an increased number of family physicians practicing rural medicine. And a terrific report came out of this effort. It's called the Rural Roadmap for Action. The roadmap has very specific recommendations for governments and policymakers to improve healthcare delivery. And there's some bold new ideas in here that we really like. We're particularly interested in the recommendation to establish a rural medicine service to provide a skilled workforce of rural family physicians ready and able to work across provincial and territorial jurisdictions. This new medical workforce would be enabled by the creation of a special national locum license designation. This week, we're very pleased to have Dr. Ruth Wilson, Task Force Co-Chair, with us to talk about the Rural Roadmap for Action and this recommendation in particular. Through leadership roles in a variety of medical organizations, Dr. Wilson has an impressive track record in advancing family medicine in Canada. And in 2012, she was named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. And hello, Dr. Wilson. Welcome to Rural Spark. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, Dr. Wilson, before we get into talking about the task force and the rural roadmap, can you tell us a little bit about your own background in rural medicine and why you came to be involved in efforts to improve rural health care delivery? Yeah, sure. Well, early in my years, actually, I worked in northern and remote communities in Canada, along with my husband. We're family doctors, and we did some additional training in anesthesia and obstetrics, and in his case, emergency medicine. And we worked in uh, Bella Coola in northern British Columbia, and then four years in Bayvert, Newfoundland, and then five years in Sioux Lookout in northwestern Ontario. And then we were recruited to Queen's University Department of Family Medicine originally to coordinate the Moose Factory program, which is a longstanding program providing service to Moose Factory. We retired from Queen's just about a year ago now and decided to move up to Yellowknife, partly because we have a daughter and son-in-law who are new family doctors, and the four of us have all moved up here together and are enjoying living and practicing together. Wow, and you have, um, so you're year-round now in Yellowknife? No, we're, um, my husband and I are semi-retired, so we're going to take some summer time in the Ontario cottage country, but uh, yeah, no, we'll be here again next winter. And uh, that background in rural medicine is quite impressive because it's given you a nice cross-section of different regions of Canada in in rural medicine needs, and I'm sure that's been helpful in your different roles uh, over the years in helping to advance rural medicine. I I see that the task force itself, which you co-chaired, was a joint project between the College of Family Physicians of Canada and the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada. Is that unique? Is is the project unique in, in being a partnership between those two organizations? And I wonder if you can share a little bit about how that effort came about. Yeah, it was a great joint venture. Um, One of the things about Canada is that we're a 
country with lots of geography and not much population. And uh, we need to coordinate our efforts and not waste our, our efforts. The Society of Rural Physicians has, a, of course, a laser-like focus on rural medicine. And the College of Family Physicians is the certifying body for all family physicians now in Canada. And I, I think it's fair to say that there have been tensions over the years about how well the college was doing in educating family physicians to meet uh, the needs of rural communities. And the Society of Rural Physicians, of course, was very keen to push the college to do more on that, and the college itself wanted to do more. So happily, we came together with this task force to try to focus on what we could do to improve the health of rural Canadians. So did members of the two organizations have a lot to do with, I guess, you know, advocating over time for uh, something serious to get it underway in this regard? Well, we started by inviting a number of members to join us, people with expertise in, in rural communities, research, policy, other medical organizations. And then we spent quite a bit of time doing research, maybe not purely academic research, but more getting the lay of the land. So talking to community members, municipal governments, patients in remote areas, doctors who had moved rural and left rural, academics, yeah, a range of people to try to, uh, oh, recruiters, people who try to recruit doctors to rural communities, trying to understand what the best practices were, what the roadblocks were, what the barriers were. So we didn't start off advocating. We started off trying to learn and uh, learned a great deal, learned that a lot has already been done, that there are many, many more, for example, rural training sites for family physicians in the north of Canada than there were 20 years ago. And we know that training family doctors in rural communities is one of the best ways to increase their comfort and desire to practice in those communities. So a lot's been done, but there's a great deal that needs to be done. And our task force uh, came out with a number of directions that we thought would strengthen healthcare for rural Canadians. And we recognize particularly that none of these uh, actions can be carried out by any one organization or individual alone, that it needs a collaborative approach from all of the people involved, from the community's government up to uh, and including federal, provincial, territorial policymakers, academia, of course, rural physicians, other health practitioners, such as nurses in particular, all of us need to work together to uh, try to improve the health of, of rural Canadians. So I had a look at this Rural Roadmap for Action. It's a great name um, that came out of the task force work. One thing I was really impressed about is just how accessible, you know, very specific and concise this is. Um, it's not a heavy bureaucratic document that's likely to sit on a shelf. I don't think I, I'm assuming that was not by accident. Yeah, I hope not. And we've actually moved now into an implementation phase. So I'm now co-chairing the Rural Roadmap Implementation Committee, which is even more collaborative and has even more partners. And we're asking people who want to join in this initiative to think about what they can do either in their own organization or in collaboration with other organizations. So we focused on a number of the recommendations in the roadmap. One, for example, is on patient transfers. Some regions of the country have excellent protocols and methods for transferring patients between rural communities and remote communities and larger centers. In other places, it doesn't go smoothly, and sometimes the larger centers complain that they can't get the patients back home when they need to get the uh, beds made available for other more 
critical patients. So um, we're convening a national dialogue on best practices in patient transfer. I know from the perspective of a rural doc myself that one of the most frustrating things is when you got someone that's beyond the capability of your center to handle, if you can't get a yes from the receiving center, it not only puts your patient at risk, but it leads to burnout on part of the rural doctor if they don't feel adequately supported. So that's just a small example, but it's one of the projects we're working on implementing. And would the the provincial departments of health and our medical schools in Canada, are they all pretty much now aware of uh, the rural roadmap and they've seen the results and maybe many of them are engaged in some way? Yeah, they're starting to be interested as well. Provincial and territorial governments uh, spend lots of money recruiting doctors to rural communities, and many things have been tried over the years, uh, return of service agreements, uh, bonus payments, as I mentioned, educational opportunities in rural communities. They're looking for cost-effective, and not just cost-effective, but effective ways of, of recruiting and retaining rural doctors. Medical schools to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the school, recognize the need to be socially accountable. In other words, to educate physicians to meet the needs of Canada. And that's not just the needs of urban Canadians, but those 20% or so of Canadians who live outside major urban centres. So a number of them have, well, all of them really have stepped up to the plate in terms of decentralizing their family medicine training programs, trying to include more longitudinal rural experiences during the medical school experience itself, and finding ways to have meaningful exposure and rural research conducted as part of their social mission. Right. And, you know, one of the, we just launched Rural Spark in January, and one of our first guests, which was a a popular episode, was with uh, Dr. Roger Strasser, who I'm sure you know is a CEO of the uh, Northern Ontario School of Medicine. And when we talked about the challenge of getting, uh, attracting rural and retaining uh, rural physicians in different parts of Canada, you know, he was quick to point out that it's, it's not just the money. A lot of people think that if we just incentivize it more financially, but that's just a, a piece of the puzzle. Do you think, do we sometimes put too much emphasis on that when it comes to uh, recruitment and retention? Well, I think the money ha- is necessary but not sufficient. So if the pay is poor, of course, that that's not going to work at all. But there are many, many other factors. So to outline some of them, and I'm sure Dr. Strasser talked about these as well, we know that recruiting medical students from rural backgrounds to start with, and indeed Indigenous backgrounds, is more likely to lead to them wanting to uh, locate in communities more similar to the ones they come from. As I mentioned, meaningful exposure to rural medicine, particularly at a length of time that allows people to really understand the joys and challenges of rural medicine is very important and also important in leading to people's comfort in wanting to locate there. Spousal considerations are huge these days. Medical students are older than they were in my day, more likely to have a partner and children, and so relocating a family becomes more difficult if there's not meaningful work for the spouse. The medical community itself has got to be a welcoming one. We know of places that have recruited fine young doctors and the doctors have left because they weren't really welcomed into the medical community or given the opportunity to use their skills or make some of the changes they saw might be helpful or necessary. And then opportunities for family growth, education for the kids and so on are are also factors. So yes, money is part of it, but there are many other factors that lead to people choosing to, to live in some of these areas. And I know in some areas where it's been a real crisis, where I'm from in rural Nova Scotia, it's kind of 
gotten to the crisis point in, in rural uh, physician recruitment, the community is kind of wondering what they can do. And in your experience, when you've been a rural practitioner, how important was it to you that community welcome and you know community support? And was it considerable in your case? Did, was it, did it make a difference? In my case, I don't think it was um, as marked as it is now. And, and sometimes I feel badly about the efforts that some municipalities put into recruiting doctors. I certainly am sad to see a lot of municipal funding going into supporting doctors when that should come from our provincial and territorial governments. But having said that, some municipalities have gone to great lengths to build you know, clinics that are ready to open and staffed and ready to go, and that's hugely appreciated. And then the personal welcome of course, is important. Everybody wants to feel welcomed and accepted by the communities that they go to. So we've been working with municipalities and recruiters to develop best practice guidelines and tips for recruiting physicians. Terrific. I'm sure that'd be very helpful. Something in the roadmap, uh, Dr. Wilson, that I found very interesting is the recommendation to establish a rural medicine service to address the need for physicians in many rural communities. Can you talk a little bit about this recommendation number 10 in the report, why it's needed and how you think it might work in your view? Well, thanks for that question. It's a, in a way, a pet project or idea of mine and it's it's at the idea stage at the moment where we need partners and funding to develop it but the concept is something like this there are already a, a cadre a pool of physicians who are willing to work in remote and northern communities and we run into each other in Iqaluit and Moose Factory and Inuvik and Yellowknife and Balakula there we just we know each other there's a certain kind of doctor who's motivated, qualified, competent, willing to do this kind of work. And I suspect there are many, many more than the ones that I know personally. And the idea would be that we'd establish, I don't know the name of it yet, what it should be at the moment, we're calling it a National Canadian Medical Service, but a a cadre of physicians who would be credentialed and prepared to go on perhaps short notice, perhaps for short or longer term assignments to communities that were in need. Ideally, I think in a situation where they could support and mentor each other, so not just one at a time, but several. I think it would appeal to early and late career physicians in particular, speaking as a late career physician myself, who's currently working with two recent grads in my own family. I see that ability to learn from each other at work and uh, the, the joy and the fun of doing that. This kind of service would need to be supported by some pretty flexible licensure because one of the barriers to uh, doctors moving across the country is the the need at the moment to have individual licenses in every province and territory. I know that back when I was recruiting doctors for Moose Factory, I could often find someone from BC or Manitoba whom I knew who was willing to come to Moose Factory, but getting an Ontario license, particularly at short notice, uh, was often a barrier. The licensing authorities were very open to my pleas, but it was still a process that had to be gone through. So the task force, in parallel with the call for a national medical service, has called for national, at least locum licensure, and now others, for instance, the Canadian Medical Association, are calling for national licensure in general to allow for more portability and flexibility. The licensing authorities, of course, want to maintain the quality and quality assurance and protect the public, but some kind of trusted traveler program like your Nexus card so that some doctors who've been well vetted 
and we could rely on. I think that's a model that's gaining some interest. So that's the dream at the moment, looking for maybe someone listening to your podcast will want to join in, uh, in making that dream a reality. Yeah, I think one of my reactions is that it doesn't sound like the whole licensing system in Canada. That's not going to. That's a ship that's not going to turn quickly. Uh, that's something that's going to take a little time and effort, is it not? Yeah, it will. Uh, Federation of Medical Regulatory Authorities are well aware of the rising demand for this kind of licensure, and this is where the idea of a trusted traveler program has come from. So they're prepared to look at what can be done. Even within the constraints of our current licensure, I think it would also still be possible, though, to um, to develop a cadre of, of doctors willing to fulfill these roles. Does that model happen at all on the nursing side, Dr. Wilson? Like I sometimes hear of travel nurses. Is that a different licensing issue with that? Is it does it is it handled differently? Yeah, it depends on where the nurses are working. If they're working in federal facilities, it's handled somewhat differently. The Canadian Association of Rural and Remote Nurses are part of our Rural Roadmap Implementation Committee. And, and many of the uh, challenges about physician recruitment also clearly apply to nurses. And nurses, I have to say, are the backbone of care in the north. I've been talking a lot about doctors, but many of the smaller communities don't have doctors who live in the communities. And Canada relies on nurses and nurse practitioners to provide that care. So so very key part of the healthcare puzzle as well. And if we have a rural community leaders who are listening and who really would like to get behind this idea of a, a national locum approach service. Is there a role for community leaders to play that would help in, in advocating for the adoption of this and, and some of the other related recommendations of the roadmap? Yes, the Association of Canadian Municipalities has been a, a partner with us and mayors and city councillors, I think, are some of them very keen to to be part of this effort. Physician recruiters who work with smaller communities, uh, there are a network of them, uh, Canadian Association of Physician Recruiters. They've also been uh, members of our task force and are, and are um, also very uh, persuaded of the importance of this initiative. Terrific. And if, if action was to be taken in the short term on one or more of the recommendations, and I know you're also very fond of number 10, what would you prioritize that could maybe happen in the next few years? And what would you like to see uh, happen to move it forward in a, in a meaningful way? Yeah, so we've talked about the National Medical Service and Locum Licensure, but we are making progress on some of the other initiatives. A key one has to do with research. We we don't have an agreed-on definition of what rural is, and we have not enough research on health outcomes in rural communities. One of the big arguments uh, that often comes up is because major medical events are rare in rural communities, it's hard to track the outcomes of care. And so people often say, well, it's better to, to go to a high-volume center. It's better to evacuate everybody for care. But that's clearly not feasible, possible, safe for everyone. And we need more research about what can safely be done in in remote communities. There's a great deal that we could learn from distance technology and some interesting projects across the country in telehealth and telemedicine that are really helping improve care, everything from dermatology consults through pictures to really virtual hands-on expert advice from a pediatric intensive care unit directly into a remote small hospital to learn about technology. Right. And over the course of your career, when you first started in rural medicine, how would you describe the change that you've seen take place already? 
in terms of technology, less than one would think. <laughs> when I was in Sulukout, we had a, a pilot telemedicine project there, which included slow scan TV, clear telephone uh, linkage, and a fax machine. Those things seem a little outdated now, but that was in the 80s, and some of the technology hasn't advanced very far from that in many of our northern communities. So although there are lots of possibilities and I know of some terrific projects going on across the country where, for instance, robotics are incorporated into uh, emergency rooms. Those all need to be scaled up much more and made much more available. Patients themselves, I see in Yellowknife the tremendous barriers they have to to travel for care, the uh, time, expense to travel down south for a short appointment with a specialist. Surely much more of that could be done by telemedicine or or in some other way. So although there's great advances, uh, I still see a huge amount more can be done. There are some other things that we can move on. One of our key recommendations has to do with Indigenous health and ensuring a, a competent workforce that's culturally safe and able to provide care to Indigenous communities. And uh, we are very shortly convening a meeting of Indigenous medical educators along with other interested partners from university health sciences centers to develop a coordinated set of of, um, learning objectives and competencies in indigenous health so that we'll have more of a national curriculum to ensure uh, that Canadians of indigenous origin are treated respectfully, part of our truth and reconciliation commitment. So that's a big piece as well. Absolutely. And given your past, uh, Dr. Wilson, where, you know, you've seen that really change has not happened fast enough, and now you've had this experience of this, uh, the task force and the recommendations, the directions that have come out of that in, in the roadmap, and I know you're continuing to work on it at the implementation phase, which is terrific. How optimistic are you that, you know, because there is such an urgency in many of our rural communities, how optimistic are you that we're going to see some real change in the next few years? Oh, I'm very optimistic. I think I'm optimistic partly because medical education has moved medical students into rural communities much more than they were when I was a medical student. So many medical students now have experienced northern Canada, remote Canada, and uh, and perhaps are more likely to consider working there. The communities themselves and Indigenous leaders are have found their voice, if they ever lost it, uh, but are, are being given voice and quite rightly demanding the kind of care that they deserve the way any Canadian does. The barriers to care in Canada are not financial, thank goodness, uh, but they are structural and geographic, and uh, we need to work hard to overcome those. But we have the know-how, and we have the passion, and we have the commitment, and I think we have the money in this country to do a better job. So I'm I'm very optimistic that we will move forward on, on many of these initiatives. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that, and it's uh, always good to have an encouraging end to a discussion on a a topic that's so important like this. We do want to touch base again now that you're in the implementation phase, so I I hope to follow how that's going and then get you back on the program um, as we maybe have even some further positive signs on the implementation side of this. So thank you very much for sharing your insights and your experience with Rural Spark and our audience today, Dr. Wilson, and we hope to have you on the program again. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week on Rural Spark. Our team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music is by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.